0: You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org
1: students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes.
2: Just a kiss. A
3: kiss. Welcome
0: to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our summer series, Six Degrees of Joan Crawford.
2: Actually, I think I was just born dancing, and that's all I ever wanted to do in life. I know what you're like. <laughs> now, why can't you be friendly? But I am
3: being friendly.
2: No, I mean it. Friendship's much more lasting than love. It's called,
3: uh, um. What's keeping you awake? Dreams.
2: Bad dreams. I don't see how any home can be complete without children. Born down, born down. I'm sorry this had to happen.
0: Last week, we told the story of Joan Crawford's rise to stardom through the late 1920s and early 1930s and her first marriage to Hollywood scion Douglas Fairbanks Jr. In this week's episode, we catch up with a Joan Crawford who is very, very famous and who once again finds herself falling in love with an actor who is not quite on her level. Joan Crawford's marriage to Franchot Tone would span much of the 1930s, a time when Crawford's stardom would peak and then begin to dissipate. Today we'll talk about that, and then we'll tell a story about what happened to Franco Tone after Joan Crawford. Particularly, the strange love triangle he entered into in the 1950s with a gorgeous but unrefined starlet and the beefcake bit actor who she just couldn't quit. Join us, won't you, for part three of Six Degrees of Joan Crawford. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So, do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/remember. netsuite.com/remember. netsuite dot com slash remember. Francho Tone was born into a wealthy Niagara Falls family in 1905, and by the late 1920s, Tone was making his way through the emerging alternative New York theater world. He studied Stanislavski with Lee Strasberg and became one of the early stars of the group theater. He made his first film in 1932 and was then invited out to Hollywood to sign a contract with MGM. Tone considered himself a serious theater actor with no ambitions for movie stardom. But movie money was too good to pass up, so he agreed to a five-year contract on the assumption that he would fund theater projects with his profits. Crawford and Tone first appeared together in a Howard Hawks film called Today We Live, based on a William Faulkner story about World War I that had been mutated to make room for a female lead because MGM needed a project for Joan. A love triangle was concocted, featuring Joan in the middle of a British naval officer played by Robert Young and an American soldier played by Gary Cooper. Joan played Joan's character's brother, but he was the only actor in the cast who got an invitation to Joan's home for tea. Knowing Franco's upper crust background, Crawford carefully stage managed the event, taking cues from the finest lady she had ever observed up close, Mary Pickford. Joan had gone to a local antique shop and bought a close approximation of the Victorian silver teapot she had watched Pickford use at her own tea parties. And with that memory motivating her, Joan practiced pouring the tea before her gentleman caller came over, rehearsing like she was preparing for an audition. Joan probably needn't have worked so hard. Tone later told her that he fell in love with her at first sight, and he'd have ample time to lay further eyes on her as MGM cast them together in two additional films over the next year but he was definitely surprised and impressed by the level of Joan's sophistication. By this time, Joan had developed a series of rituals in her home and had costumes appropriate to each. Writer-director Joe Mankiewicz remembered dropping in on Joan one day unexpectedly while she was catching up on her correspondence. She was sitting at an antique writing desk, and when Mankiewicz complimented her on her dress, she said... It's one of my dresses for writing letters. When she invited him to stay for lunch, and he agreed, she excused herself and said, I'm going to change into one of my eating lunch at home dresses. MGM capitalized on the press surrounding Crawford and Tone's relationship by casting them together in seven films, but not always as a romantic pair. And when they were paired opposite one another romantically, usually Tone's character would spend much of the movie loving Joan from afar, and then he'd only actually land her at the end of the movie after other romantic entanglements didn't work out. And then there were movies in which Frenchot's character was given a formidable rival. In one of them, Love on the Run, Tone's character, a reporter named Barney, is in direct competition with the film's real male protagonist, another reporter, played by Clark Gable. Tone spends the entire film chasing after Gable and Crawford, and at one point, Crawford's character even tries to use Tone's to make Gable mad. But the competition between men is purely professional. When it comes to the affections of Joan Crawford's flighty heiress in this It Happened One Night redo, there was no contest. Tone understood that this was just how it went on screen. Gable had previously won Crawford away from him in the 1933 musical Dancing Lady. But when he married Joan Crawford, Franco Tone may or may not have been aware that his new wife and the couple's two-time co-star had been engaged in an on-again, off-again affair since the middle of her last marriage. (music) Gable and Crawford co starred in eight films over the course of a decade. Both archetypical stars of their era, representing Hollywood's ideas about gendered perfection, Gable and Crawford had similar backgrounds and had, in some sense, worked the same act of, intentionally or otherwise, marrying into professional credibility. Gable's first wife, Josephine Dillon, was also his acting coach and 17 years his senior. They divorced in 1930, a year before he first starred opposite Crawford in Dance Girls Dance, in which Crawford played an heiress who goes broke, becomes a cub reporter, and goes undercover to investigate her own brother's involvement with gangsters like Gable. A year after that, Gable and Crawford starred in my favorite of their collaborations, Possessed, which we talked about last week. According to some accounts, it was during the shooting of that film that Gable and Crawford first began their affair, even though Gable had just married his second wife a few months before. By this time, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was also engaging in what he later called one-night stands, but he hoped his marriage to Crawford would survive. In an apparent effort to distract attention away from the rumors about Crawford and Gable and strengthen at least the image of at least one of the marriages involved, MGM paid to send Crawford and Fairbanks on a belated honeymoon-slash-photo-op tour of Europe. This backfired. Joan had a rotten time on the trip, and it led to her decision to leave her first husband. Joan Crawford loved Clark Gable, and in her advanced age, she would never fail to compliment his masculine assets and talents. The affair with Clark was sublime, she'd say, Probably more exciting because we felt like kids who'd gotten into the cookie jar while Uncle Louie was in the other room. But she seems to have understood that they were not fated for a matrimonial match. The illicitness of their relationship was a big part of why they liked it, and Gable showed no interest in leaving his new wife for Crawford. When Joan met Tone, she saw him as a much-needed left turn away from Gable in every way, She saw him as somebody who could be a good influence on her. In addition to coming from a moneyed, high-class background, Tone had acting cred. It was presumed to be a given that his future lay in doing great things on the stage. In the mid-1930s, Joan Crawford and Clark Gable were great stars. But Franchot Tone had the promise to be a great actor, and that was something Joan desperately desired for herself as well. After dating him for almost two years, Crawford finally fell hard for Tone and agreed to marry him after they finished making the film No More Ladies. On the set of which, Joan got to observe Franchot and director George Cukor discuss and put into practice a level of acting which was theater-based and totally revelatory to the untrained former Lucille Lassure. Joan would later credit George Cukor for helping her as an actress more than any other director.
3: Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
0: All but forgotten today as a star based on his own merits, Tone shows up in a number of the greatest hits of celebrity your almost by accident. He played a small but possibly crucial part in one of the most lasting aspects of Crawford's legacy, her longtime rivalry with Betty Davis. Shortly before Joan and Franchot married, he starred opposite Davis in Dangerous, the film that would win her her first Oscar. Legend has it that Betty made a play for Franchot during production, and already engaged to Joan, he apparently turned Betty down. That proves that Betty did have some good taste in men, Joan later said. Her second husband, Joan said, told her that while he respected Betty Davis as an actress, he never thought of her as a woman. We'll talk more about Betty and Joan in a future episode. But if you haven't seen Dangerous, you should watch it, because it's super weird and intense. And it gives you a better idea of what Francho Tone's thing was in Hollywood than many of the movies he made with Joan Crawford. He excelled at starring opposite big female stars as the handsome, charismatic man who the female lead, for one reason or another, probably shouldn't be with. keeping with the pattern of Joan Crawford's life playing out like something out of a Joan Crawford movie, for the first year of her marriage, if there was any indication that she and Tone were a bad match, she didn't see it. She was inspired by him to build a small theater in the backyard of her mansion, where husband and wife gave performances of serious plays for friends. There was some friction in melding their social circles. Basically, Tone's New York stage world friends didn't understand why he was slumming it with a movie star, but they were able to ignore a lot of that for a while. And then, the problems on the periphery started creeping in. Jones' star was continuing to rise, and French popularity was staying the same. Tone was nominated for an Oscar for the 1935 version of Mutiny on the Bounty... But eventually, his studio boss, Louis B. Mayer, essentially gave up on his prospects for stardom. Joan tried to talk to Mayer, with whom she had a great relationship, on her husband's behalf, but it was to no avail. And Franchot didn't feel great about the fact that his wife was so much more powerful than he was. He felt he was fighting against the perception that he was Mr. Joan Crawford. The situation hit a breaking point during the filming of the gorgeous hussy, a romantic drama based on the real-life petticoat affair, in which Joan played Peggy O'Neill, an innkeeper's daughter who became a confidante of Andrew Jackson and the fulcrum in the scandal which resulted in the resignation of most of Jackson's cabinet and the ascendancy of Martin Van Buren. In real life, the scandal was ignited by the apparent love triangle between Peggy, her husband Beau Timberlake, a purser in the navy and Senator John Eaton, who Peggy then married once Timberlake, died at sea. But Peggy spends much of the movie romantically enthralled to another senator, John Randolph, played by Melvin Douglas, and Eaton, played by Tone, became a small, almost token role. Here, as in other films in which they were romantically paired, Tone essentially waits in the wings to salvage Joan's reputation, Once she's done, cycling through a bunch of other romantic possibilities. Franchot had played second fiddle to Clark Gable a couple of times now, and that was bad enough. But in The Gorgeous hussy, he was third or fourth fiddle, and that was more than Tone could handle. His drinking started to affect his work, and he'd often show up late and unprepared. For Joan, who was obsessed with professionalism and preparation, this was unattractive, not to mention embarrassing. There are observers who claim that both Crawford and Tone showed up on the set of the film with bruises, suggesting that they were fighting out their frustrations with the situation when they went home at night. The gorgeous hussy was considered a box office disappointment. It only grossed twice what it cost to make. And most believed it was because Joan had been miscast as a woman of the past, No woman in Hollywood was more modern than Joan Crawford, sometimes to a fault. Certainly now, with two marriages in a row, she had put her own career ahead of her husband's feelings. Professionally, this was working for her. By the end of 1937, she would be named the top box office draw in Hollywood for the third year running. But both that run of success and her second marriage wouldn't last. Tone and Crawford's final film together was The Bride Wore Red, directed by Dorothy Arzner, the only female director Joan would work with in her entire career. This was another one in which Tone's character, this time an Italian small-town mailman, patiently waits until Crawford's character works through other, flashier choices in men before coming around to him. The problems between the marrieds continued on this set, and on her next film, Mannequin, Crawford had a set fling with co-star Spencer Tracy. Around this time, Joan reportedly decided to surprise Franco on the set of one of his films. She ended up walking in on him in his dressing room in a compromising situation with an unknown actress. According to Joan's friend, an MGM publicist named Jerry Asher... Joan was less upset at the fact of infidelity and more annoyed that her husband would cheat on her with a nobody. At least when she fooled around, it was with the biggest stars she could find. Though it would still be over a year before they divorced, this was the functional end of Joan Crawford's marriage to Tone. And then the unthinkable happened. Joan Crawford's name was named alongside Greta Garbo, Katharine Hepburn, Mae West, and other stars in an article written by exhibitor Harry Brandt. These stars, according to Brandt, were, quote, poison at the box office. It was true that two recent Crawford films, The Bride Wore Red and Mannequin, had lost money, but they had been interspersed with Crawford films that had turned profits. Things got worse before they got better, Crawford's next two films, The Shining Hour and Ice Follies of 1939, in which the 35-year-old Crawford played a figure skater turned movie ingenue, also lost money. Tone tried to tell her that the Depression was to blame, that every studio was saying that moviegoers were responding only to gimmicks like giveaways at the movie theaters, and that Brandt had simply been scapegoating Joan and the other actresses. But Joan was certain that it was subpar material that was to blame for her decline at the box office. And for the first time, she went to Louis B. Mayer and demanded that he put her in a better movie. And he did. The Women was groundbreaking in 1939. And it still would be today for being exactly what it claimed to be on the label. It was a film about women, and only women, with its all-star cast, including not a single male. This is not to say that the women is exactly a paragon of the Bechtel test. Much of the drama concerns a love triangle between Mary Haynes, played by Norma Shearer, her never-seen husband, Stephen, and the perfume-counter shop girl who steals him away from his family, Crystal Allen, played by Joan. The film's opening credits interspersed images of its female stars with representative animals. So sexy Paulette Goddard was a fox. Innocent Joan Fontaine was a lamb. Norma Shearer's wife-caught unawares was a deer. And Joan Crawford was a leopard, teeth bared in a ferocious growl. A woman's life, according to the women, was all gossip, leisure, and superficial self-improvement often at the same time. Shearer's Mary is positioned as an outlier because she's athletic and treats her mother and daughter as, like, members of the family rather than burdens to be passed off onto servants. Although Mary does have servants. The otherwise black-and-white movie stops in the middle for a famous single technicolor fashion show sequence, which is both a parody of the incompatibility of the fantasy of fashion and quote-unquote everyday life, and an indulgence in the spectacular and boundary-pushing abilities of the richest studios, art direction, and costume design departments. This sequence is a bizarre outlier in a film which is otherwise motored by nonstop, fast-paced dialogue. And in fact, it's a movie that's in part about the damage done by ladies with their mouths. In the film's opening sequence, Rosalind Russell's busybody learns from her manicurist that Shearer's husband is being unfaithful with a hussy who wears the racy shade of jungle red. Russell rushes to a payphone, and by lunchtime, the whole, wholly female social set knows of Mrs. Mary Haynes' humiliation. Soon Mary knows, too. And then, 30 minutes into the movie, we meet the other woman. Here's Joan as Crystal Allen, top-shelf manipulator of men, first brusquely cornering a black maid into cooking dinner for Crystal's date with Mary's husband, and then transforming to take a call from the man himself. The interjections we hear are from her catty perfume counter
2: co-worker. Hey, never mind. That's just got to go out right away. Wrap it up. Was you asking for me, Miss Allen? been scarring the whole store for you. Why don't you run to my apartment and cook dinner? <laughs> I've got a date tonight, Miss Crystal. Oh, you can break it. Come on. But I'm noted for the bad way I cook. If you throw a lamb chop into a hot oven, what's going to keep it from getting done? Hey, what happened that hot date you had on for tonight, darling? It's hotter than ever, dear. I'm having him dine at my place about time he found out I was a homegirl. Homegirl? Mm. <laughs> get her. Why don't you borrow the quintuplets for the evening? Because I'm all the baby he wants, pet. How much would you pay me? Two bucks. Can't you make it three? I said two bucks. Oh, all right. Will I find anything in that icebox of yours? Yeah, no. cobwebs and a bottle of gin. Here, this and don't. Now go on, get anything and make it fast. Oh, it's, the it's for you, Crystal. Oh, it's too late to take any orders Now tell him I've left the floor, anything. All right. I'll tell the gentleman. Gentlemen? Well, why didn't you say so? Hello? Oh, hello, Stephen. What? Well, uh, don't worry, my sweet. I, of course I don't mind your breaking our engagement. Well, that is a of course, but it's such good discipline for my selfishness about you. Holy mackerel, what a lie. Shut up, will you? Well, I, uh, I, I was going to surprise you tonight, darling, and and cook dinner myself in my little apartment. Oh, why, of course I can cook. She thinks because Lulu's dark, he won't be able to see her. Oh, well, you don't know half my accomplishments. Now say he does Will you get out of here? Oh, well, that, that that's all right, Stephen. I'll save you a piece of the cake with a candle on it. Oh, well, I, I didn't tell you before, Stephen, because I was afraid you might do something extravagant. Oh, it is dear of you to want to be with me on my birthday, but I won't be lonely. No, honestly, I won't. And uh, if this weather lets up, my neuralgia will be better, and then maybe I can... Oh, no, it's, it's nothing. It's just nerves. I had a rather gloomy letter from home today. My little sister, she's not very well. What's wrong with her? She got a hangover? But she'll be all right. Yes, I'm... I'm holding the thought... Oh, oh no, Stephen, I, I I couldn't think of your disarranging your evening. I'll have another birthday next year. You'll have another one next Look, week. so help me, I'm going to slug you. Oh, Stephen, if you could drop by for just a few moments and have a glass of sherry to my health. Stephen, oh, I do need you so... Yes, dear. Yes, darling, I'll meet you on our corner in five minutes. Goodbye. Say, can you beat him? He almost stood me up for his wife.
0: In The Women, Crawford is supposed to embody the supposed truism that the greatest obstacle to an adult woman's ability to control her own destiny is not a man, but other women. In a film full of razor sharp quips, scripted by the great Anita Lowe's, Crawford has some of the best lines, like this one.
2: And by the way, there's a name for you, ladies, but it isn't used in high society, outside of a kennel. So long, ladies.
0: Crawford's look in this movie is a subtle parody of the excesses of self possessed femininity. Her eyebrows are thin, drawn on arches, her cheekbones somewhat too chiseled her hair permed into a ridiculous halo. She and her romantic rival meet for the first time in the dressing rooms of a department store, while Joan is outfitted in a ridiculous gold lamé turban and matching pussy bow blouse and shorty pajamas set. Shearer's Mary offers her a word
2: of advice. May I suggest if you're dressing to please Stephen? Not that one. He doesn't like such obvious effects. Thanks for the tip. But when anything I wear doesn't please Stephen, I take it off. Crawford only
0: has four or five scenes in The Women, even though she's second build. And it's Paulette Goddard who gets to speak the lines that form the thesis of the film, that while it's a woman's lot in life to compromise, that's all the more reason to fight, to claw and scratch and, in one catfight scene, literally bite to get what she wants. But that sentiment is the essence of Joan Crawford's career. And so The Women looms large in her filmography, even though it's not really her movie. Crawford was inordinately proud of her work in it, and she remembered it fondly for the experience of working with director George Cukor, who was her favorite director, and one of the only ones she thought deserved to be singled out as a uniquely talented artist, and not just a studio hack. After filming The Women... Crawford filed for divorce. She would later credit the many miscarriages she suffered while married to Tone for putting more of a strain on the marriage than it could bear. The way Tone described it, there was simply no room in Joan's life for him, with all that went into maintaining her stardom. She must get her homework done, her lines learned every day, he said. She has continuous meetings with the producer or the director or someone else equally important each evening. She has to get up at 4 or 4.30 in the morning in order to get to the hairdresser and get onto the set. She needs a massage at night before she can sleep for a few hours. She has to eat sparingly and exercise constantly. This goes on and on. And when Saturday night comes, other duties, other priorities arise. Conferences about the next script, talks about dancing lessons... Discussions about yoga, tennis, and swimming lessons. As Franchot concluded, she's a star. For her part, Joan put a finer point on the problem. I don't believe Franchot ever for a moment resented the fact that I was a star, she'd say. Possibly, he resented Hollywood's refusal to let him forget it. But even if his wife had overshadowed him professionally, and even if he was being all but cuckolded on screen as well as off, marriage to Joan Crawford was the good old days for Franco Tone. In fact, the pair would stay friends for the rest of his life. When they divorced, he went back to New York and the theater. He continued to act in movies, and while he was considered to be a good actor and a moderate celebrity, he never became a top-billed star in A-movies. In 1941, he married actress Jean Carroll, who bore him two sons. They divorced in 1948. And then, things got weird. In the summer of 1950, Tone was invited to judge a Charleston dance contest at a club on the Sunset Strip. He helped select as winner a gorgeous, blonde, up-and-coming starlet under contract to Warner Brothers named Barbara Payton. Barbara had recently been named the most beautiful girl in movies by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, and she had just filmed her biggest part to date, opposite James Cagney in the film, Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye. Though still on the rise in Hollywood, Payton was already a fairly notorious party girl, one who was known to love to drink and to enjoy her effect on men, and who had murky connections to unsavory characters. She had been married once and had a young son who mostly didn't live with her. The highly civilized tone seems to have become obsessed by Peyton's wild spirit. Joan and Franchot had by this time settled into a comfortable friendship and Joan had heard enough stories about Barbara that she warned her ex-husband that she was a chippy and a tart and to stay away from her. Joan Crawford did not exactly have a belief in sisterly charity between actresses, particularly from an older generation to the younger. After all, no one had helped her. Knowing this was probably not the only reason why Tone didn't heed Joan's warnings. The fact is, Franchot Tone was both attracted and repulsed by Barbara Payton's coarseness. He loved her independence and unpredictability... And he wanted to groom her and change her. He bought her ladylike new clothes and jewelry, which she sometimes wore, accompanied by temporary face tattoos, which for a short time became her charmingly gaudy personal signature. This was how Barbara was turned out at a party French show through at the Stork Club in New York in October 1950 to announce their engagement. But their relationship was not exactly based on a foundation of trust. Barbara seems to have never had any intention of remaining faithful to her fiancé. Long before they could marry, with the aid of detectives, Frenchow caught Barbara in bed with at least one of her male co-stars. But the real trouble was yet to come. While Barbara was filming the cheapy thriller Bride of the Gorilla, a loan-out assignment that was basically punishment for refusing too many Warner Brothers scripts and generating too much scandalous gossip, Franco went to New York to work. And in his absence, Barbara met and became involved with a beefcake actor named Tom Neal. In what seems like either an extraordinary coincidence or just evidence that mid-century Hollywood was impossibly incestuous— Barbara Payden's biographer claims Tom Neal had had an affair with Joan Crawford in the late 1930s, while Neal was a contract player at MGM, and when Crawford was either separated from but still married to Franchot Tone, or just barely divorced from him. This biographer says Joan figured out that she wasn't the only person Neal was sleeping with, and that he was, in fact, also having an affair with an MGM executive's wife and that Joan, miffed that she didn't have the boy to herself, told on Neal to Louis B. Mayer, which led to a confrontation between the mogul and the actor, which led to Neal being dropped from his MGM contract. The dots don't all quite connect in this story to suggest that anything more sinister or conspiratorial was going on, other than that Crawford and Payton had the same taste in men, and that the same men were floating around looking for women like Crawford and Payton in the 1930s and in the 1950s. Which is to say, incredibly beautiful women who enjoyed active sex lives. But based on what happened in the late 1930s, it seems unlikely that Tom Neal didn't know who Franco Tone was when he met Barbara Payton in 1950. And if so... That would mean that Tom Neal knew perfectly well whose life he was about to light a garbage fire in the middle of. On July 31st, 1951, Barbara announced to reporters that she was no longer going to marry French O'Tone, and in fact, she had proposed marriage to Tom Neal four minutes after they had met. As Tom put it to Newsweek, quote, Barbara asked me to marry her. She was engaged to Tone when I met her, but she told me she wanted me because he was too dull. She said I was exciting. This was apparently all news to Franchot, who returned from New York a month later and started trying to get his fiance back. In mid September, the day before she and Tom were scheduled to marry, Barbara agreed to meet Franchot secretly at the Beverly Hills Hotel. A few hours later, Barbara called her maid and asked her to pack a bag and bring it to the hotel. Barbara and Franco spent the evening making the rounds of the Sunset Strip nightclubs. And after 1 a.m., they returned to Barbara's apartment, where they found Tom partying with a group of friends. Barbara's ex-fiancé and the man she was scheduled to marry the next morning started exchanging words. Barbara kissed Franchot and asked him to get rid of Tom. This may have been a test. She knew Franchot could financially support her and give her entree into a higher echelon of the acting world. But could he physically defend her? The answer turned out to be no. Tom punched Franchot so hard in the face that he went flying through the air and landed several feet away. He was knocked unconscious for a moment and he awoke to find Tom kneeling on his chest, pummeling him relentlessly. It's unclear if Tone got any punches in at all. At one point, Barbara tried to intervene, and Tom accidentally elbowed her in the face, giving her a black eye. The beating went on for ten minutes, until another male party guest finally succeeded in pulling Tom off of Tone. Franchot had a broken nose broken cheekbone and jaw, and a concussion. He was unconscious for over 18 hours. Doctors worried that the concussion may have caused a blood clot, which could lead to a stroke or death. An LAPD homicide detective told reporters that if Tone died, they would charge Tom for murder. When the immediate mortal danger passed, reporters turned to the longer-term impact on Tone's career— As plastic surgeons got to work repairing his smashed-in face, one was quoted as saying, In a general way, it's reasonably certain he'll look like Franco Tone, but as for close-ups, who knows? Barbara stood by Tone. At first, she visited him in the hospital, bringing her mummy-wrapped paramour martinis in a thermos. But before Franchot was even released from the hospital, Barbara and Tom were photographed together at a nightclub. Eventually, Tone dropped the charges against Tom, and Franchot and Barbara eloped the next day, exactly two weeks after Barbara and Tom were supposed to have married. A month or so later, Franchot spent a night in jail after spitting on and strangling the neck of gossip columnist Flora Bell Muir in a nightclub. After 53 days of marriage, Franchot filed for divorce, and then they got back together. But Barbara was still flagrantly seeing Tom. At a press event held for some reason at a strip club, Barbara said nice things about Franchot into a microphone while Tom looked on. Four months later, in a hotel room with Franchot, Barbara attempted suicide via sleeping pills. A few days later... Franchot left her for good. In the highly moralistic media climate of the 1950s, the beating and the love triangle it exposed got outsized attention. It became something the whole nation, already in the grips of the Red Scare, could point to as evidence of the rot and depravity of Hollywood. In The Fallout, Barbara was dropped from the cast of a prestigious film and then cut from the Warner Brothers roster altogether. No other studio dared to take a chance on her. In front of the courthouse, after her divorce hearing, Barbara told reporters, When I married, Tone, I thought it would last forever. But forever is just a weekend, more or less.
3: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: Peyton's notoriety lasted just a little while longer. She got back together with Tom Neal, and together they went to London, where Barbara appeared in a couple of movies for Hammer Films, and then she and Tom returned to Hollywood and starred together in a cheap Jesse James movie, and then a traveling stage production of The Postman Always Rings Twice. In the middle of a show in Chicago... She fainted on stage after apparently drinking vodka for hours before the show. Soon thereafter, Barbara and Tom broke up. By now, it was only 1953, but Barbara's looks had already been diminished by alcohol. Her final film, Edgar G. Ulmer's Murder Is My Beat, was released in 1955. That year, she was arrested for bouncing checks at her local supermarket. She was ordered to pay a $100 fine But she didn't have the money. She had to borrow it from the owner of one of the nightclubs she frequented. She moved into a roach-infested apartment next door to Mela Nurmi, who was then on TV as Vampyra. She started selling stories about her affairs with men like Bob Hope to magazines like Confidential. She helped a fourth husband start a business in his native Mexico. And when that relationship ended, Barbara moved into a flophouse apartment on Sunset Boulevard in Fairfax and made her rent by turning tricks. First with execs and actors, friends and guys who had been hanging around long enough to know who she was. In a haze of booze and, eventually, heroin, her price dropped from 300 to 100 to $50. We know this because in 1962, she detailed it all in her ghost-ridden autobiography, titled I, am not ashamed. But there was no redemptive bookend to Barbara Payton's story. She died in 1967 at her parents' house at the age of 40. French Tone's life lasted just one year longer, but unlike the other three corners of the Payton-Neal love triangle... The former Mr. Joan Crawford's career rebounded from the scandal. After four years off of screens, Tone rebounded via television, and then he returned to movies in the 1960s. At the end of his life, he was fourth billed in Arthur Penn's Warren Beatty vehicle, Mickey One. And then Tone, a lifelong chain smoker, was diagnosed with cancer. He and Joan had remained friends and were maybe closer 25 years after their marriage than they had been at certain points during it. Though he'd worked steadily for almost 40 years, he had never been a top echelon earner, and he had frittered away all of the money he had earned on good times and bad women. Towards the end, Joan paid for his medical care, frequently feeding her wheelchair-bound second ex-husband dinner in her Manhattan apartment. When he died, it was Joan who scattered Franco Tone's ashes over a lake in Canada that he loved. Next week, we'll see what happened when Joan Crawford left MGM, the studio that had been her home for 20 years. Spoiler alert, she won an Oscar. Join us then, won't you? thanks for listening to you must remember this this episode was written narrated and produced by karina longworth that's me our research and production assistant is Lindsay d schoenholz our editor is sam dingman and our logo was designed by teddy blanks if you like the show please tell anyone you can any way that you can you can find past episodes and more information about this episode at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Remember This Pod and find us on Facebook and Instagram, too. Please subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't already. And also, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes really helps people find it. So do that if you haven't. We'll be back next week with another tale from The Secret's and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.